We're in a series called New Normal. And what we've been doing is going verse by verse, word by word, through this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' most um, influential, unpacked, deepest, life-altering, life-changing message. His greatest hit. And we've been diving into it. And so I'm going to invite you to go there with me. If you've got a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be where we start. Um, as you're turning there, let me just say something about this Bible. Well, you're online in your digital Bible, or you got yours out, or, or maybe later on you're listening to this message somewhere down the road, or, or you're uh, maybe my generation down, and you're like, hey, I only do phone, Bible, Bible, whatever you want to call it, that's your thing. Here's what I want to press in on. Like, as we've dove into this series, one of the things that's been um, awakened in my heart is a hunger for God's word. Like a hunger to know what this thing means, how it applies to my real life. And one of the things that's, I, I, I don't know if it's okay to admit this, one of the things that has been turned down in my life is the desire to hear what a whole lot of other people think about this. Now, I'm very careful because I don't want you to tune me out. Uh, just give me a second. What I am trying to dial us up into is a hunger to put this in front of our face more. We, we, develop, we dig into a lot of content as humans. Like at this point in our society, like as the world as it is in 2021, like content is probably at an all-time high. And what I'm calling us to do is to realize that long after I'm dead and gone, long after whatever your favorite preacher you have passes on and all of uh, their favorite, or your favorite books on Jesus and your favorite quotes on Jesus from those favorite pastors, and long after YouTube deems uh, this gospel message and all those videos of sermons that are put out there as once they say, and they probably will, I'm just going to call it now, uh, that that is hate, hate speech, that that gospel is offensive, and we're going to wipe all of that out. The thing that you'll be left with is this. This word of God. If we can't do this, do you know what you can still have? This. Don't let your faith be contingent on a gathering, on a link, on anything else. But what you receive from your heavenly father that he put in his word. So maybe it starts with, you know, buying one or finding the one that you already bought. And again, I say this multiple times. Like if you want a nice one, Lost and Found has a few. Um, we will, if you don't have one, we will get you on whatever we got to do to make sure you have a copy of God's word to be able to lean in. And, and I pray as we've been diving through this message um, of diving into Jesus's sermon, his spoken word, that it meets you where you're at, but it doesn't leave you there. And that's what I'm going to pray for today as we get ready to open up and go into it. Jesus, thank you for speaking this sermon. But Father, I know you didn't just send Jesus to earth to go through what he went through to preach a sermon. You sent him here to change everything. To be a bridge between broken sinners and a loving father. And I pray that as we come into your word that we are hungry, God. That we long to hear you speak deep into our hearts, deepest desires. And that I don't know what everybody walked in here today hungry for or thirsting for. But Father, I pray that it's more of you. So lead us to you. Lead us to you, Jesus. In your name. Amen. All right, like I said, got a Bible, go to Matthew. We're going to start Matthew 5.1. Let's read this together. That means you can read out loud if you want to. You don't have to. I'm not going to get mad at you if you don't. Matthew 5, starting verse 1. We're going to read uh, through. Again, we've been going through these Beatitudes. Jesus uh, starts out this world's greatest sermon, most life-altering. You know, he threw the world on its head here, gave the ultimate new normal. And these are the first things out of his mouth. Starting verse 1. 
Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's going to be the passage we unpack today. That, right there, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, again, to set up the context of what's going on in this passage. If you go back to chapter 4, we look at the people who are following Jesus around. This is a category of people called the Anawim. They were the throwaway people, the people who are deemed the have-nots. They were the haves and the have-nots. The have-nots are following Jesus around. They're longing to be with Jesus. Jesus just got through healing them, taking care of them, saying, you're now out of the margins and into the main part of the screen. You're a main part of my mission. It's the throwaway people, the people who don't feel like they fit in, the people who have been ostracized, the people who don't think they have what it takes. Now you're in this. And then he goes and says, blessed are you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they are will inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we go through these Beatitudes, we've made this point a little bit already, that they are like monkey bars. They are things that you have to start here to get to the next one. It's not like the Proverbs where you can go and pick out which one you like the best and say, this is my favorite one, I'm just gonna do this one. You start at the place of saying, I am poor in spirit. I recognize I am spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing that I can do in and of myself to save myself. Jesus, I need you. And in that poverty in spirit, Jesus says, all right, great, now you're blessed. Blessed are you when you realize that. And that word blessed is a, is a Greek word, makarios, and it means the utmost joy of life, the highest life you could experience, the biggest joy that you could ever get in life. Happy joy doesn't even scratch the surface. It is God's face looking at you, pleased, makarios. Blessed is the person who realizes they are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. From there, he says, blessed are you when you are out of poverty of spirit, realizing that you don't have what it takes, and realize then that there is something that has been lost. And that sin that has got you to the place of poverty is now something we mourn over. So blessed are those who mourn. He says, if you mourn over your sin, you can be guaranteed that you will be comforted by Heavenly Father that says, what you thought sin stole from you, I am giving back to you a relationship with me. And he says, blessed are those who are meek. We talked about that last week. That's not a, um, a strength under control. It's the, the weakness of all human existence. The, the reality that we are out of control, that we cannot do anything, that we don't have the strength, that we don't have the money, that we don't have the finances, that we don't have the resources to do anything in and of ourselves, but realize that God, through us coming into that relationship, now being a son and a daughter of him, he says, now my power, my strength is going to work through you in a mighty and powerful way. And it's going to be on display. And then we come to today where he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled or satisfied. Now, when we, when we hear hunger and thirst, like, let's just be honest today, like, you're the 11 o'clock crowd, all right? You're people who showed up. Some of you skipped breakfast. Who skipped breakfast? A lot of you. It's not good. Um, who's legitimately hungry or thirsty right now? Online, you're, all right, online, what, if you could eat any, just think about it. Let's just get it in our minds right now. If you could, at this very moment, eat anything, what would you want to eat? You know, if you could drink anything, what would you want to drink? Coffee. Um, who's, who's for us bringing the cafe back? Anybody? Yes. All right, cool. I watched all of you raise your hands. You are new, the new volunteers. Um, I saw it. The, the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, I saw it. 
I, I sent it. Um, you, I, I'm gonna, when we open it up, I'm going to send you an email. So we all got things we're hungry for and thirsting for, but the reality is in America, maybe if you're not from here and you've maybe come out of a place of poverty or you grew up somewhere where you actually maybe experienced this, but the vast majority of us, we've never experienced truly being hungry and thirsty like Jesus is talking about here. There's different words that are translated in the Bible of hunger and thirst. And more often than not, there are ones that are like saying there's a craving that you can choose not to. It's like when you skip breakfast in the morning, you're riding into work and you pass Bojangles. And you're like, mm, I kind of, and you can choose not to and just roll through. Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. This hunger that he's talking about is one that you cannot deny, that you would just whip it. Like you're pulling into Bojangles, getting that Cajun filet biscuit that I believe by the glory of God is, in my opinion, I'm, again, I'm team Bojangles. I think it's better than Chick-fil-A. No offense to anybody who, you know, maybe a Chick-fil-A diehard fan. Um, I just love spicy stuff. I don't know. Cajun filet all the way. He's saying this is the intense hunger, an intense thirst, one you cannot deny. We see the same word in uh, another passage in Jesus's life. It's actually what he does before we enter to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 4, 2. Jesus was sent and led out into the uh, wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted. And then Matthew 4, 2, we have the understatement of, of uh, award verse. And it says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I would be hangry, hungry, like for real hungry, 40 days, 40 nights. And again, Scientists have done the studies. I mean, there's an intense pain of hunger that exists when you go this long without food. He is hungering to the place where there is no other thing that has his attention. There's no other thing I want more than food. I'm not worried about what my hair looks like. I'm not worried about, you know, who likes me on Facebook. I'm not worried about what's going on at work. I am only singularly worried about eating. And then we see thirst. And I love that here in this passage, Jesus says these are two things. Two things essential to life. Two things that you, you, here's what you do. You know I have to work up an appetite, right? You're just hungry. You just eat, and you get hungry again. You didn't have to tell your body, body, we're going to be hungry around 12 o'clock. Let the preacher finish early. We're going to be hurry. We're going to be hungry then. No, your body just does it. It's natural. It's hardwired in. And then thirst. In John 19, verse 28, we see the same passage that I think puts this in the light. Again, it's Jesus. 1928. The Gospel of John it says later. Now that later is loaded. That later right there that's at the beginning of this passage is later. And what has happened before that that led to the later is Jesus sitting out in the garden, praying, sweating like drops of blood, begging the Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass for me, let it be, but my, not, not my will be done, but your will be done. And then after that, he sees the group coming to arrest him. He gets betrayed by one of his best friends. He stands up, he kisses them on the cheek. They begin to put his hands behind his back and they lead him to a, a fake trial with some real consequences. He gets led up to a place where he begins to be abused, punched in the face and blindfolded and told, hey, prophesy, who did it? He gets whipped, flogged, uh, 39 minus one. Has his back beaten and brutally opened up and he gets put on a cross, naked before the entire city. There in the hot sun that day on Golgotha. That's later. That's what happens. So later, comma, knowing that everything had now been finished. And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So that same Jesus, who prior to saying this verse, had experienced 40 
days in the wilderness hungry said this verse, and then one of his last words ever on the cross was, I am thirsty. Gives us right here in the middle, in between these two things, what hunger and thirst that he's actually talking about actually look like. An intense craving that cannot be satisfied. And this is one of those cravings that, again, most of us in our American society, we've never experienced this, but it's that point in poverty, it's that point in hunger, it's that point in desperation, even so to where you know that the only way that that you've lost all hope in the government flying a helicopter overhead and it's just dropping down rice paddies. You've lost all hope in this water ever getting pure enough or somebody to come bring wells. You know that if I'm gonna get satisfied by thirst or satisfied by hunger, it is gonna be a divine intervention, satisfaction. That's what he's saying here. And he's saying that that's my singular desire. Nothing else matters. So that's hunger, that's thirst. He says, blessed are you if you're, You have that type of craving. You have that type of desire. Now, I ask you, right now in this moment, what are you most craving? Because hunger and thirst, okay, that's it. But what are you most craving? A promotion? Craving financial security? Craving somebody getting to notice you? Craving some some peace? Craving, man, I just want a, a good week. I just want things to be chill for a little while. Are you craving a restoration in a relationship? Are you craving a child? Craving a husband or a wife. What is that thing that you're craving most right now? He says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness. Now, righteousness is a word, a word that on the ears of the people hearing it and the ears of us even in this room, we go, what? okay, what does that mean? Because we're pretty familiar with self-righteousness. We're like, we've all met self-righteous people, right? We met them, we know them. We, with other people, when we see them coming down the hallway, we're like, and we walk back into our office Self-righteous people, we know self-righteous, but what is the world is, is, is like God righteousness. I want to spend the bulk of our time walking through what is righteousness. First thing, if you're taking notes, write this down. Righteousness is who Jesus is. It's not what he does. It's not the things that he practices. Righteousness is his identity. He is righteousness. Jesus, this is what's awesome about him, he is God in flesh. He's not a man who was on earth, and this is every other, a lot of other world religions, he's not a man who did a lot of good things and became a God. He's not half man and half God. He is God who became man, and he is fully God and fully man at the exact same time. So that means Jesus is God in human flesh 100%. And as he comes to earth, and as he does what he did, he is 100% of God's righteousness revealed in every word, action, deed, emotion, thought that he had. It was God's righteousness on display. So if we want to know, okay, what in the world is righteousness? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's God's righteousness on display in the life of the God-man, Jesus. Acts 3.14, Acts 7.52, Acts 22.14, and 1 John 2.1. I'm going to have time to unpack all those verses for you. But every one of them identified Jesus as the righteous one. The righteous one, that's his identity, that's who he is. So next, we go, okay, well, Jesus is righteousness. There's more to the story, though. I want you to see the whole picture of what righteousness is. Righteousness, write this down, righteousness is who I am in Jesus. Now, there's a big two letters in there, I-N, in. Because if you are O-U-T, Jesus, if you're not in Jesus, 
you're not in righteousness. The only way into righteousness is through Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and life. You don't get into righteousness by going through good works. You don't get into righteousness by having perfect attendance at church. You don't get into righteousness off of grandmama's faith. You get into righteousness only through Jesus. That's how you get in. And most of us, we've come to the place where we realize, and if we're honest, like our righteousness couldn't cut it anyway. Because we know what Paul talked about in uh, Romans 3.10. Love what he said. It's a hard truth, especially for us who are uh, go-getters and... Um, want to put it together ourselves. Romans 3.10, he said, as it is written, again, Paul, he knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand. He goes back and he quotes the Old Testament. He says, there is no one righteous. Nobody. Not even one. Not one. So he says, even, and Paul goes on later to explain this about his life, and we're going to get into it a little bit. He says, even your best attempts at righteousness is filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. So my works, my rituals, my morality, my good habits, all that I could do to hopefully someday measure up to God, to climb this ladder to him, is all failing. No matter how hard I try, I can't attain that perfection. And that is the beauty of faith. That's the beauty of the gospel. My, my, my favorite verse that accumulates and shows this to us is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Maybe you've heard this before, but I want to I show you the, the beauty and the truth in the gospel that you don't have what it takes. You couldn't do this on your own, but God begins to give his righteousness to you. And here, here's how it happens. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, that's Jesus. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin. So Paul's right there. Had no sin equals righteous. He's righteous. Everything that he did was right by God. It was the right way of doing it. Everything he did was right. He had no sin. To be sin. So God made him who had no sin righteous to be sin, unrighteous. For you. For me. For us. So that, now here's why, he, here's why God, now again, we will spend the rest of our lives here on earth figuring out the first part, everything that comes before that comma, that why in the world would a God who is righteous become unrighteous for us? That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what I love about faith, our faith in Jesus that we will never figure out. It's beautiful for us so that in him, in him, again, there's that word again, in him, we might become the righteousness of God of God. So this is Jesus saying, I am holy, I am perfect, I am righteous. I have done everything right by God. I'm going to take on all of your unrighteousness. This is what's the divine trade. I'm going to take on all of your unrighteousness, but I'm not just going to take it on and then like give you something new. I'm going to take all of your unrighteousness on and I'm going to become unrighteousness. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take off all of my righteousness. And now that's put on you if you have put on faith in me. Now, what's ridiculous about this is it's not just you get your best, like now you're deemed righteous, like in your human version of righteous. It says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's not the righteousness of grandmama. That's not the righteousness of that uh, Sunday school teacher who had his act together. That's not the righteousness of your pastor. That's not the righteousness of the best version of you. That's the righteousness of God. And what's beautiful about that, this is what's amazing. 
when you in faith, at the moment of salvation, you receive and you become the righteousness of God, what that means is the you that's sitting in that chair, the you that's watching online, you in this moment are no more righteous right now than you will be 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000 years having been in heaven. You right now is just as righteous. Why? Because it's the righteousness of God, not yours. His righteousness doesn't change. So right now, it's the same as it's going to be way up then. And that's the gospel. That's what's beautiful. That's what's amazing about what he's putting on display here is that you, in Christ, become the righteousness of God. Did I earn it? No way. Did I deserve it? No way. But I need to pause here and like ask a question. Are you in Christ? Because if, like if you haven't put your faith in him, and again, we talked about this last week, faith is not merely this mental assent to go, I believe Jesus did these things. Faith is belief and action. It's belief and surrender. And so I'm, I believe this in my mind. I'm going to surrender with my life, primarily through the waters of baptism. When I go down under that water. I'm raised up. I'm a new creation. My old unrighteousness, my old rags, or my old filth, that's washed away, and I'm a new creation. Not that it's some good new version of me, but it's Jesus' life. When God looks at me, he sees a righteousness of himself in and through me, all right? So what's righteousness? Righteousness is who I am in Jesus. Now, let me throw a whole wrench in some of this. Righteousness is also who you are becoming, now, you should be going, hmm, so it's who I am, and it's who I am becoming. Well, that's a conundrum. It's, a, it's who I am, but it's who I am becoming. I think this is where we mix up righteousness. And we think, oh, well, I'm just right by God. I'm good with God, so I can just go do whatever I want. Just kick back, take it easy, eat, drink, be merry, sex, drugs, rock and roll. I'm righteous. But righteous is not just who you are in Jesus. If you are in Jesus, it's also who you're becoming. Paul was talking to his protege, Timothy, he said this, 1 Timothy 6, 11. He said, but you, man of God, look at it, he's so encouraging. But you, man of God, flee from all of this, which is saying run for us, run. He's talking about when, when he says all this, he's talking about all the filth in the world, all the depravity, everything to be easy for a young man to be tempted by. He said, flee from this, run away. And he tells him what to run to. Flee from this and pursue righteousness. How do I, okay, so again, unpack the conundrum here. I'll unpack like this weird dichotomy. He's saying, you have righteous. You have become the righteousness of God. Right now, in this moment, your righteous standing is the same as it's going to be before God here now as it will be 2,000 years in the future in heaven. Okay, but now I'm being told to pursue it? Okay, so do I have it or do I pursue it? Yes. Let me explain. Whiteboard time. whiteboard time whiteboard time this is my whiteboard song alright righteousness alright in the bible when we talk about righteousness it's kind of broken in to two concepts of righteousness one is based off of our practice and living out and one is based off of our position. Now, what I talked about earlier in point two, that righteousness is who I am in Jesus. That is my position. Positionally, I now stand before that judge, righteous. Now, it's position and it's practice, all right? So we'll do 
position. It's not that's his PO practice. And practice. Position and practice. Now, when we talk about righteousness, stay with me. I'm gonna start out with some words you may not understand, and then we'll get to some words you definitely are gonna understand. All right. We usually talk about it, theologians talk about it, church words talk about it. This marker stinks. I'm gonna find a new one. I know where one's at. Back on screen. And he's back. Exercise while preaching. Imputed. Y'all gonna make me work for it today. That's all good. Imputed righteousness. And there's imparted righteousness. All right? Imputed righteousness is a righteousness that has been put into me at the moment of salvation. It's been put in, it's on deposit. And again, through these whole beatitudes, we, we've been talking about God is looking and this is what Jesus flips the world on his head. He said, all you thought about religion and who is righteous and everything else was an outside in thing. He said, no, 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 not anymore. Now, when God looks at you, he sees you from the inside out and he sees what he put in. He says, he put, he put him in. who looks at you and he sees his righteousness. And there's imparted righteousness. Again, this is practice. This is the righteousness of God now actually becoming a part of your life, in your parenting, at work, everywhere. Now, this is where you are justified, which means when you stand before God, it's just as if you've never sinned. He says, when I see you, I see Jesus, the one who never sinned. You are justified before me. Now, again, you may still be going, I don't get that. That's a big word, too. Don't get that. Here's what you will get. This is where Jesus is Savior. This is where you are saved. Saved from the punishment of being unrighteous. You've now been justified. Now here, on this imparted side, this is where we are sanctified. All right? Sanctified. And again, sanctified, I don't, the best way I know how to explain this is the reality. Parents, you'll get this if you have a kid who's been baptized. They got baptized. They came out of the water and they were still a jerk. Like, like they, they still backtalked you. They still made bad grades and tried to hide them at school. Like there's a sanctification process happening in their life. It's the reason we don't come out of the water just like floating around, fluttering our wings, just like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Like, that's not what happens. There's a sanctification process. Again, there's something that has been put inside us. We have a position of righteousness, but we've got to practice that. And it takes practice to get that righteousness out. All right? Now, again, you still may be going, okay, oh, yeah. This is where Jesus becomes Lord. Now, you've heard these words, right? I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, right? I, he's my Lord and Savior. The problem is, most of the time, we just let him be Savior. We start everything on this category, and we're just like, I like this category. I just want you to be my Savior. Get me out of hell. I'll pray that sinner's prayer. We'll knock that out. We'll be good to go, and then we'll live life. And most of you, if you've ever had some times in your life where you hated Christians or Christianity, it was because people only did this box. They said, okay, uh, yeah, they live like everybody else. They do what everybody else. They backtalk everybody else. They have Jesus as their, la- their Savior. He's not the Lord of their life. Lord 
is reign, it's rule, it's fought like who's on the throne of my heart and whose will is being done. And that is the question to determine whether or not you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. From here, if you ask the question, you ask me, okay, how do you determine whether or not you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness? I, everything starts to me in prayer. It, it starts with what is my heart saying to God? The prayers of somebody who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I believe, runs along these same two things. So here, it's going, again, this is, this is all about identity. This is my position. What's been put into me, I stand justified. He is my Savior. This is where we say, I am yours. I'm yours. This is the prayer that surrenders to God and goes, I'm yours. I'm not my own. I'm not my bosses. I'm not even my kids. I'm not even my husbands. I'm not even my wife. God, I am yours. You're my savior. So you save me. So you have me. I'm yours. That's the prayer of somebody who's hungry and thirsting for imputed righteousness. Imparted righteousness, a little different. And this is in quotation too. Again, this is what you should be praying. This is your prayer. That's a you, sorry. Struggles being lefty. This is where we say, all right, I'm yours. I'm yours 100%. Now your will be done. If I'm gonna say you're savior, I'm gonna say I'm yours. You save me. But if I'm also going to say you're Lord, and I'm going to hunger and, thirst, uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness, then I've also got to say, your will be done here in my life as it is in heaven. This is what it means to both have righteousness and pursue righteousness. I have righteousness and I pursue righteousness. All right. Again, I've done this before for everybody to take pictures. Here we go. You got it. One, two, three, four. All right. Moving on to the next point. Like I said, you guys are going to make me work for it today. Having fun. All right. Those are the prayers of somebody who's hungry and thirsting for righteousness. It does not stop there with you and your butt and your seat, though. God's righteousness is so much bigger than me and you. It's a us thing. So righteousness, point four, righteousness is what Jesus is restoring to the whole wide world. Our world is broken. Doesn't matter who you vote for. We can all agree it's broken. Poverty, injustice, racism, abuse, disease, disaster, human trafficking, rape, abortion, rampant in our world. It is a broken, messed up place. And every aspect of brokenness can be traced right back to our lack of righteousness, us not being right with God. But I have good news. Jesus initiated and started this crazy little thing called the church. He didn't just say, you've got my imputed righteousness. Now you can actually be in heaven. Because like I said at the beginning, now you can, you can actually be there at imputed righteousness. But he didn't just go, all right, everybody's got it. Let's go. Let's let this world continue to go to hell in a handbasket as long as I get my folks here. No, he said, I'm going to leave you here. Because I want imparted righteousness, sanctification to work out in your life so more people come into a relationship with me so that more righteousness happens on this earth. That's why he did not say, I am coming to make all new things. He says, I am making all things new. 
He doesn't want to just press reset on this world. You think he, he knows how broken it is. He knows just how broken it is. But he still says, I don't just want to take all everything on the table and just swipe it all off and press reset and start over with a new slate. He says, I'm going to make all things new. And I'm going to use you, broken people, to do it. And that's how we bring righteousness here. That's why, again, circle all the way back to Beatitude 1. He said, blessed are you when you are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right? So if I'm poor in spirit now, and then the kingdom of heaven is mine, well, when do I get it? Not when I get into heaven. I get that. And again, we talked about the kingdom of heaven. is any place where God's will or what God wants done is done. That's the kingdom of heaven. And I get that at the point of poverty and spirit, not at the point of crossing over to the pearly gates. So it's here, and it's here, and it's right now in the midst of where we're at. Peter was talking about this, and a verse that I've, I've, I guess I've read before. I've read, I've, I thought I read through the whole Bible, but this was a new one for me um, to be able to lean into this aspect and this thought here. He says this, 2 Peter 3.13, but keeping with his promises... We are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. So Jesus is going to keep his promises. promises. We believe that, so we're looking forward. We have this hope because this place, and this is what's mind-boggling, this place where we see all what we see, this place is going to be a place where righteousness dwells. Now, that's good news because the word dwell gets translated a couple of, we translate it as dwell a couple of different Greek words. One of them is a word that's more like a sojourner. So it's kind of like talking about like if you were flying to Hawaii on vacation this summer, you would temporarily dwell at LAX in your layover before you went to the promised land. This dwell is not that kind of dwell. This is a permanent place of residency and location. This is being where you belong. He says the earth is going to be a place where God's righteousness permanently dwells. Now, we talk about God's righteousness coming into McDonough, the city of McDonough, as it is on earth. I don't want us to get it twisted or tangled. God's righteousness, the kingdom of heaven coming to McDonough as it is in heaven, does not only mean churches get bigger. It means the city as a whole gets better. This becomes a more desirable place to live. It doesn't mean that just churches get filled with church people. It means the city looks like the kingdom of heaven. It means that the hungry get fed, and that's righteousness in action. It means that races are reconciled, and that's righteousness in action. It means that there are no more kids in foster care, and that's righteousness in action. It means that the homeless get shelter, and it's righteousness in action. It means that the abortion clinics close down, and the drug dealers move out of town because there are no more clients in McDonough for them to be found. That's God's righteousness reigning in our city. And that's what he wants to do through us, his church. And my prayer is that we would be a place where that happens, that you would crave seeing that in your life and seeing that all around you, that more than you crave anything else, you crave that. I love this passage, and I'll end with this today. There's a guy named Rodney Stark, not a Christian, would, would identify himself as an agnostic. That means kind of I'm searching. I don't know if, I don't think Jesus is God, but I don't know if there is not a God. I'm not an atheist. I'm just kind of out here trying to figure something out. He wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity. So he studied how we got from a group of 12 guys with their leader just crucified to you sitting here. And he talked about where the unstoppable momentum was created as the early church began to explode. This is what he says. 
You can read along, it'll be on screens. Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing, there it is, new norms. Isn't that crazy? New norms. That's what we're talking about, new norms. And what's awesome is that Jesus preaches Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, and lo and behold, people listened. People surrendered, and the imputed righteousness became imparted righteousness, and they started in their culture, in their society, in their cities, creating new normals. So that's, that's the encouragement enough for her to go, it is possible. Don't ever buy the lie that we're just going to always stay racially divided. Don't buy the lie that the old kids are always going to be an orphan. Don't buy the lie that there's always going to be poverty. There's always going to be homeless. There's always going to be those. Don't buy that lie. He said they created new normals and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent urban problems to cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished. Christianity offered charity as well as hope to cities filled with newcomers and strangers. Christianity offered immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded family. To cities with violent strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. In the cities faced with epidemics, fires, earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. That is what righteousness is coming here to earth. And my question to you is, are you craving that? Realizing that Jesus is righteousness, that in him I am righteous, that in him I am becoming righteous, and that through us, he wants his righteousness to reign here on earth as it is in heaven. And if we hunger after that, we crave that where nothing else can be satisfied, then we'll be filled. And what's all, what I love about this passage, or this particular beatitude, because the other ones don't necessarily have this flow to them, but it's cyclical. He says, and again, that makarios, blessedness, is saying you will experience the ultimate form of satisfaction. He says, blessed are those Satisfied are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be satisfied. Now, again, those two things don't match up. Well, I, why am I blessed are those who hunger and thirst? But blessed people don't hunger and thirst. That's weird. And that's what some of you have experienced. Some of the old saints in the room, you've walked through this where you got a little taste of Jesus. You got a taste of God and you want more. Everybody remember that like first love Jesus? We remember those moments where it was like, man, when, when you first follow, started following Jesus after camp or Bible study, man, you just got all fired up and excited about it and you wanted more. Some of us have let that run dry. You talk about it in sports. You know, they talk about like an older, like guy may have got an MVP, may have got some esteem, may have got a big contract. And when he starts to nosedive, what do they say about him? He's not hungry anymore. And then you see the young guy two years in, just got his big break, just got his chance on the stage. And you can look at him and you can tell that guy's playing hungry. I think Jesus is looking for some Christians who want to play hungry, who want to roll hungry. I'm hungering for your righteousness in my life and the life of those around me and the city that I call home. My prayer is that we would surrender to him enough to let his will be done here and his righteousness come as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Move in our hearts, our minds, our lives. Draw us away from our own attempts at righteousness. Bring us into a place where we experience your fullness of your righteousness. We crave it, God, more than anything else in this world, more than money, God, more than anything, more, more than acclaim, more than approval, more than power, more than control that we, crank, we claim and we crave the righteousness of God over our lives. Thank you, Jesus as we commune with you, 
reveal where we've fallen short. Allow us to repent of what we have craved more than you. And let us, God, know that it is no coincidence that you tell us every time we gather to eat and to drink, to be reminded that you satisfy the deepest hunger and you satisfy the deepest thirst. And I pray even in the small cracker and the few drops of juice, you would be doing that in the hearts and the souls of your people today. In your name, amen.